We are studying the book of 1 Corinthians, and all that means is it is the first letter that we have written to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth is a bunch of house churches, really, because uh, at that, even at that time, you couldn't build a church building. That would be just like, hey, come here and arrest everybody. So they really were in relatively small gatherings, but they thought of themselves as a community. So this one letter written to the church in Corinth, and they would share that and get together and have a lot of fellowship with one another. So that's what we're studying. Now, the Corinthians, uh, this is a little map of what we're talking about. Corinth is an interesting city. We talked about it in our last lesson, so I won't go over that very much, except to say it's extremely rich city because you can see it sits on a little isthmus and it has ports on both sides. And in fact, if you wanted to transship cargo from one sea to another, that was a shortcut. And they would come there and they'd haul the cargo over, put it on another ship and take it off. Well, Corinth was very rich because they were such a trading hub. Corinth was also very pagan. And when I say that, what I mean is they worshiped a lot of gods, a lot of idols. They worshiped the whole Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses. They were also known, even in the ancient world, they were known for their sexual immorality. We talked a little bit in our last lesson about, this is a picture of Sisyphus, the first king of Corinth. And we used that story to introduce us to the idea that people in that time came to Christ with a lot of... Uh, Oh, history, a lot of teaching, uh, really what I'm going to call a worldview. We're going to talk about that just a little bit because Paul wants to address in this lesson how they look at the world. Well, how did they look at the world? Well, they grew up really being heavily influenced by Plato. And I'll talk about that in just a second because I, I want you to understand how what they learned as far as science is concerned, as how, you know, what is the nature of reality around us? We all carry a view of that. We just don't necessarily think about it that way. But that's true for every human that's ever lived. Well, they had a very platonic view of the world. They had a very capricious view of the gods and goddesses. Their gods and goddesses could literally be on a soap opera. I mean, they had no morality like you and I would think of morality. I mean, there was cheating and there was rapes and there was a lot of sexual immorality and that was their gods that was their role model if you will they thought about existence as being they the if bad things happened it's just because the gods were upset for some random reason they didn't have a very optimistic outlook on life you know life is hard and then you die i mean it wasn't a very optimistic culture so they, they came to Christianity, the ones that accepted Christ, came with that way of thinking about the world. And so they struggled as they accepted Christ and they began to be sanctified. And that's a biblical term for being made holy, being made like Christ. That's what happens when you follow Jesus Christ. You, you know, you surrender yourself and you say, Christ live in me and the Holy Spirit lives in us and begins to form us into the image of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, a famous passage in verse 28, 
you know, God works in uh, all circumstances for the good of those who love him, but it goes on to say that you were predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that's what the Spirit's doing. Well, the Corinthians, let's just say there was more remodeling to be done with the Corinthians than some other people. They had a lot of things that had to be transformed in them. And so they were doing a lot of things wrong. And, and I don't say wrong as in the sense that they, oh, they were just awful people. They're awful Christians. They're really struggling with letting go of a lot of the things from their old life to be renewed in a new life. So they came with thinking and actions from their old lives. And you know, so do we. And that's why one of the reasons I think we can learn so much from this letter even though these things happened 2,000 years ago, we are virtually the same in terms of, of ideas and worldview. Well, by way of introduction, we give you an idea of something that Paul's going to address this. He's not going to mention it, but he is going to operate realizing that they grew up with a particular view of the world. And here is the view that most of the people at that time had. Plato lived around 400 years before the time of Jesus Christ. And so the, the world view of, uh, you have Socrates and Plato was his student, and then you have Aristotle, he was a student of Plato, and Aristotle trained Alexander the Great, and when he conquered the world, he took all of that philosophy with him. It's this kind of worldview, this kind of philosophy. So this is elementary school curriculum back in the day. Plato has this really interesting allegory, this interesting story that he used to tell people, here's what it's like living in this world and kind of how to frame it up and understand it. He said, pretend that you were in a cave. That's the figure on the right in this picture we're looking at. And you've only ever lived in this cave, much like our children until they were about 12. So you've only ever lived in this cave and outside, there is some, there's a sun or there's a source of light and you see shadows on the cave wall. Here you see the shadow of a bird on the cave wall. And so to the people who are in that cave, this is a very famous illustration, the people in that cave, the only reality that they know are those shadows. They see a shadow, a shape of a bird, and they may even say, that's a bird. They come up with a name for this. Well, they don't know, but you and I do, is that's just a reflection of the real thing. There's a real thing called a bird. You're just seeing the shadow of it. Plato said, that's the way we all perceive this world. Everything you see in this world is but a, uh, a shadow, a, a replica, a poor copy, if you will, of the real thing. Not just the real thing, like the chair you're sitting in, is a replica, if you will, a shadow of the true chair. Even things like love and beauty, all those feelings and thoughts that we have are merely reflections of the ultimate truth and beauty and goodness and virtue. And so we lived in a bit of a shadow world says Plato. And so if you wanted to get in touch with and basically elevate yourself to the next plane of existence, you needed to know what's called wisdom, meaning you need to see the real world behind the shadows on the wall. 
And so the Greeks were always looking for wisdom, for the higher consciousness, if you will. And they believed that the soul or the spirit inside of you, if you would lead a virtuous life, that your spirit might ascend to the realm where you could see things like they really are. But here in this body, the, about the best you could do would be to see the shadows on the wall. Does that make sense? Okay, you're like, man, that's a crazy way to look at the universe. Well, it is to us, but that's kind of how they understood the world. And in fact, people understood the world that way for a long time, and some still do. Some would still argue that you don't perceive the essence of reality, you just perceive the shadow, if you will, of reality. Okay, so that's how they're thinking, and so they're looking for wisdom. They're looking for true knowledge that exists on some higher plane. That's what the Greeks were after. And so as Paul is writing, and let me remind you, at the time of this letter, he is in Ephesus in Turkey. It's about 53 AD, and he is writing a letter back to the church that he had visited a few years before in Corinth. He's writing the letter because they sent some messengers to him and they said, Paul, you were here for a while, but you didn't answer all the questions as we start to live the Christian life. We have some questions about, well, what does it look like to live the Christian life in this situation or in that situation? And the messengers brought some news to him about things they didn't ask about, but Paul said, oh, we definitely need to address this that's going on there. So the letter of 1 Corinthians is really Paul addressing a lot of very specific things about the Christian life that they weren't doing right. So it's not that he dislikes them. We looked at the introduction. He talked about how he prayed for them, how he cared for them, how he spent 18 months there with them, preaching the gospel and having fellowship with them. But he's going to write to them in a pretty blunt and straightforward way that this is Christ-like and this is not Christ-like. So that's where we are. And let's jump into the text. Again, ask questions as we go. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 10. This is immediately after the introduction. He says this, I appeal to you, brothers, or brothers and sisters, or brethren. Basically, I appeal to all of you Christians in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, in an authoritative way, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household. Now, Chloe is a female name, uh, then as now. Well, I don't know if it is now or not. I guess you can name anybody you want, anything you want now. But bottom line, she was a lady, and she probably had a house that was big enough to have a church that gathered there, a group of Christians that worshiped there. He said, so from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, well, I follow Paul. I'm a student of Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Think of it like early denominations. Well, you know who Paul is, and you probably don't yet, unless you've read the book of Acts, know who Apollos is. Apollos, a Greek lawyer who becomes a Christian, and Priscilla and Aquila speak to him, 
and disciple him, if you will. In other words, they spend time with him, teaching him the fullness about Jesus Christ. He becomes a powerful preacher. He's a good orator, he's a good speaker, because in those days, that's what lawyers were. I mean, they might have known a little about the law, but really the big thing was that they were very persuasive speakers. Well, he was on fire for Christ, and he just used those abilities to preach. And so Apollos was a very good preacher. Paul speaks about him in other places. Cephas is, that is the Hebrew word for basically Peter. So Peter is very well known, the apostle, and his teaching. And so he says, some of you say that, well, I'm a student of Peter. And then others, well, I'm a student of Jesus Christ. And he continues and he said, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And I'll stop there because what Paul is basically saying here is he wants to address this problem of divisions in the Corinthian church. They're splitting and say, well, I, I'm a follower of Paul. I'm a follower of Christ. Well, I think Peter's got it right. Paulos, killer preacher. I love the fog machine that they have, you know, when he preaches. So I, I'm with him. And so there, you begin to see these divisions. Believe it or not, this is not what we're going to talk about in this lesson because Paul is going to take a detour. He wants to talk about the divisions, but he says, wait a minute, before I do that, I need to lay some groundwork for you. And he says it because of this. He said, if you think about the world like you used to, like if your morality is the sexual immorality of the Greek gods, if your view of what reality is like is the reality of Plato, he said, you are not going to understand anything that I'm going to tell you. So he's going to take a detour and talk about, as Christians, here's how we think about the world. But this issue of division is a big deal. We'll come back to it, but I just want to set the stage for you uh, at the moment because we have this same issue, not just in the church, and we'll talk about that specifically in our next lesson. One of the questions I want to answer next time is, is it okay to have denominations? I mean, are we like the Corinthian church, or is there some reason that this is different? But in our culture in general, we probably live in a time that we at least feel like we are as divided as we've ever been. I mean, I saw a poll today. I believe the poll came out yesterday. It is a USA Today and Suffolk University poll, political poll. And it's talking about the 2020 election in America. So they polled Democrats, Republicans, Independents. They polled a lot of people about the 2020 election. And most of the people said this would be the biggest election in their lifetime. It would have huge implications for America. So we feel like it's really important. But here's the interesting statistic that caught my attention. It said that 40% of the people in this poll, so this is Democrats, Republicans, Independents, 40%, four out of 10 people said, if their candidate did not win in 2020, they would not believe that it was a fair election. I mean, it, that's really interesting, isn't it? And that, that's, I'm not saying that's one side or the other. That's 40% of everybody said, well, if so-and-so doesn't win in 2020, that will only be because the election wasn't fair. That's what you would call pretty divided. That's, let me give you a great analogy. I've heard this, uh, and I can't remember who brought this up, so it's not original to me, but it's a very good word picture. It's like two teams playing a game of basketball. 
And so they play the game and the scoreboard's up there. And at the end of the game, buzzer goes off. And one team looks at the scoreboard and said, we won. Our score is higher than your score. And the other team says, we won. We don't think the scoreboard's right. That's what our politics, and really, not just politics, that's what our culture is like. We can't even agree that the scoreboard is right. That's what this statistic was showing me, is people say the only reason my candidate would lose is if it's not a fair election. So very divided. So my point is simply this. What Paul has to say about this is very applicable today as well. One of the things here, I want to, make a, I want to plant a seed here and we'll tie it up later in the lesson. This is the Tower of Babel phenomenon in human existence. You remember the Tower of Babel story way back in the book of Genesis? I'll just refresh your memory briefly. But basically, humanity gets together, begins to build a tower to heaven saying, hey, we'll be like God, basically. Look how powerful and how awesome we are. And God scatters them by making their languages unintelligible to one another. And then you move on through human history and you realize that we have a lot of things that divide us. Languages divide us. Race can divide us. Ethnicity can divide us. Religions can divide us. Nationalities can divide us. We can divide over what cars we drive. I mean, humanity seems to like the idea of us and them. Us is good, them is bad. In other words, this seems to be built into us. The whole tribal nature of human history is one of warfare. There is no civilization that had tribes that didn't have inherent warfare. It seems to be the way we've been built since the fall, since the fall of humanity, called the Babel phenomenon. And what you see in our culture is a reflection of that that Babel phenomenon. Well, the same thing's happening with the Corinthians. They're all Christians. They're all new Christians, and they're already dividing. Like, you know what? Paul's better than Peter. Oh, no, really? Jesus is better than him. And so that, there's that nature of us to divide. So Paul says, I want to talk about this, but you know what? I can't talk about this until we start to think like Christians. And that's what Paul wants to talk about first. Let's jump in. He says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, the good news, tell this story, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness. The word there is literally, it's crazy. It's moronic. It's where our word moron comes from. And it basically meant it's crazy. I mean, this story about Jesus this Jewish guy dying on a cross, coming back to life, and that's how you're going to be reconciled to God. He said to, to those who are perishing, that sounds crazy. It sounds foolish. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Paul says, where is the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, turned away from God. God was pleased through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews are always looking for miracles and Greeks are always looking for wisdom, but we preach 
Christ crucified. That's a stumbling block to the Jews, and it seems crazy to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews or Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man, and the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of man. Well, let's stop for a second. Because now he's gonna say, look, before I can even address this division, we gotta talk about how you look at the world. He said, because you used to look at the world in a, in a way of the wise man, the scholar, the philosopher, and you sought wisdom, or those of you that were Jews and became Christians, you were always looking for some special sign from God. He said, we preach to you this message, Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. He said, and that is how we view the reality of the world. He said, you will never solve your problem with divisions and unity, in this case, until you think the, the way Christians think. And he's gonna spend some time on this. This is important because one of the things I put on social media was this. Uh, I think it went something like this. Uh, basically, if I have non-Christian friends who sometimes behave better than my Christian friends, so what is the point about being a Christian? Well, there are several answers to that question, but one answer to that is Christians and non-Christians think about the world radically differently. This idea of worldview, in other words, how you look at the world. Here's a definition, a couple of definitions actually. Your worldview is your overall perspective from which you see and interpret the world around you. What does it mean? Why am I here? What's the meaning of what's happening in the world? The second is a collection of beliefs about life in the universe held by an individual or a group. Well, the Corinthians had a worldview. They had a view of what's right and wrong. Well, it's right to win and it's bad to lose. It's right to be sexually immoral as long as your wife doesn't catch you. Uh, it's good to cheat people as long as you get ahead. In other words, they had a world view that they learned. They realized that nothing here matters very much because it's just a shadow. Human life didn't matter very much in the Greek and Roman world. Why? Why did they have rant? I mean, they had slavery, unbelievable, way beyond what we understand slavery. I mean, there were more people were slaves than were not slaves in the whole ancient world. Why? because you're all just shadows anyway. There's a reality up there that's, that's different, that's better. Does that make sense? It informed everything about their morality. And so for Christians, here's a passage, Romans 12, 2, that speaks to this. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. He said, you've got to stop conforming to the pattern of this world. In other words, I know you grew up being told a lot of things, and they weren't true. He said, instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me just put that in different words. Jesus Christ, God has a different view of the world than what you used to have. By the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve and understand God's will. So the biggest difference between Christians and non-Christians, at least that's obvious, is Christians and non-Christians think about the world very different way completely different way of looking at the world. And that's what Paul's trying to explain to them. In fact, you see this embedded in Jewish and Christian literature. Let me start with the Jews. In the Talmud, 
which is not the Old Testament. Think of it as kind of a commentary on the Old Testament. The Jewish sages and the Jewish teaching was this. When you do something that is uh, good, you are acting out of your God-given nature. You are created in the image of God nature. You're being, to put it in modern terms, you're being the authentic human being that God made you to be. When you sin, you lie, you cheat, you steal, you treat people wrong, you hold a grudge, you, all the things that are sin. When you sin, you sin because you have delusional thinking. That's what Jews thought about sin, and they're absolutely right about that. Is sin is the result, this is one way to think about it, of delusional thinking. Well, the Corinthians had very delusional thinking. I mean, think about worshiping gods and goddesses, sexual immorality. Paul's going to say, look, you used to think that was good. And in chapter 6, he's literally going to say that. That's the way you used to live. But no longer. Why? Because you have been renewed. You now think about the world the way God thinks about the world. In James, this is a great way to understand the book of James. You're saved by grace through faith. And let me substitute trust for faith. Same word in Greek, probably a little closer to its meaning to us. Faith is kind of overused, but trust, we understand trust. That's like active. James, though, says, you know, faith without works is dead. In other words, you say you have faith. Show me your faith by what you do. Well, sometimes that's... Christians say, wait a minute, I thought we were saved by grace through our trust. Now James is talking about what we're doing. That's because your actions are driven by the way you view the world. Jesus says in the book of Matthew, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person, it's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. He said food comes in, clean, unclean, doesn't matter, and just passes through your body. But the hurtful things, the sinful things that come out of our mouth come from our heart. To that means is it comes from the way we view the world. And so the Bible really understands sin in the way of not thinking about the world the way God does. And Paul wants to change that. So back to our text. He not only says that the crosses foolishness to the world, but he also says that it's opposed to the wisdom of the world. In other words, part of becoming a Christian is reading your Bible, and this is one reason that you have your Bible. I'm just one of many, but it's one reason that God went to unbelievably great lengths so that you have a New Testament in your hand. There are a lot of people that died so that you and I could read these letters. And one of the reasons is so that we can understand how God sees the world. It's part of our growing up in Christ, if you will. Matthew, uh, one of the ways Jesus says it is this, the greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That statement, I know we just say it and move on because we've heard it before. If you stop and think about it, non-Christians do not believe that. They do not believe that's the way the world works. And I used to be there, and I thought, that is dumb. I thought, I wasn't hostile, I just thought, you Christians, you're so cute. 
And you're so socially useful. You guys just keep doing that, you bunch of losers, because that's not how you get ahead in the world, right? It's not the last shall be first. No, taking care of number one is how you get to be first. You see my point, all I'm trying to say is that's not the way the world thinks about things. And so Paul is saying, you're never gonna get around these divisions, you're never gonna get around disunity, you're never gonna get around sexual immorality, you're never gonna get around all these problems you've written me about until you begin to think about the world the way God thinks about the world. And so that's what he's trying to say here. G.K. Chesterton said something interesting. He's talking about the famous writer Carlyle. And he said, Carlyle said that men were mostly fools. Christianity, however, says that they're all fools. And that's true, and all the women are going, oh yeah, you don't have to tell me that. Uh, but bottom line is what he's saying is, is that Christianity says we've all been deluded in our thinking. Uh, the first three chapters of the book of Romans is, even though what could be known about God was obvious to us, we ended up worshiping the created things instead of the creator. In other words, one of the ways to think about Christianity is radically changing the way you see the world. Instead of seeing it in shadows, if you will, God is saying, let me tell you how things really work. And that's what Paul is trying to describe, and that's what this passage is basically talking about. He goes on, he says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called, meaning when you came to Christ, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things and the despised things to nullify the things that are, so that no one can boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God. In other words, Jesus Christ, he's saying something philosophical, but it's more than philosophical because you actually live your life based on beliefs like this. He's saying Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. Remember when Jesus said, I know the way to eternal life? Well, he didn't say that, did he? He didn't say, I'm your guide. He didn't say, I have a philosophy. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, Jesus said, I don't want to just give you a book that says how to get to heaven, the ultimate self-help book. He says, no, the only way to do that is you need to become me. You need to look like me, think like me, and act like me. You need to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And I, if you will trust me, have faith, my Holy Spirit will mold you into my image. That's what we're about as Christians. So don't think about it as a behavioral code. You know, so if your friend acts better than your Christian friends, okay, what's your point? That has nothing to do with this. Will our behavior change? Of course our behavior will change. But that's, that's not how you tell that. Why you tell it is, does our mind change, does our heart change, and then our hands will change. Then our actions will also change. So, he's saying that God chose the lowly things of the world to shame the big things in the world. I'll tell you one of the great statements about that. By the way, this is all over the Bible. Uh, Jesus said this. He said, it's very hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
That wasn't him saying that, okay, well, if you're rich, you can't go to heaven. He just said it's hard. Why is it hard? Because you're tempted to put your trust in something else. <clears throat> you know what? It's also hard for codependent people to go to heaven. Oh, that got too psychological. But you get my point. The point is, if your trust is in something other than Christ, that's not going to work out, is it? He's predicting, he's basically a predictive statement, is if you've got your hope set on something, if you've got your life invested in something, in a worldview, in something else you trust, you're in trouble. Ecclesiastes is the story of Solomon who said, I decided to find out what really is the truth about the reality of life. So I had wine, women, song, fame, fortune, etc. And what the conclusion did he come to? Meaningless. It's all meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. And he says, you know what? The fear of God is actually the beginning of real wisdom. And so that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, you can never understand the wisdom of this world will never understand what we are about as Christians. We have to take on the mind of Christ. <clears throat> One of the best quotes about this, uh, and this is true for everything. This isn't just true for possessions or riches. It's true for relationships. You guys remember Jim Elliott? He was the, uh, he died in 1956, I believe. I may be slightly off on that. But basically, he was a missionary to Ecuador, and he was killed by the people that he was uh, witnessing to. But he said this, he's also known for saying this. This is brilliant. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say that again. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That in a nutshell is what 1 Corinthians is saying. That's Paul saying, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Change your mind. You're out here trying to grab things that you think are going to give you security or safety or truth or whatever. You can't, God says, those things all pass away. The smart person, the wise person, the Christian person basically gives up the things that you can't hold on to in order to gain the things that you cannot possibly lose. Jesus said it this way, don't store up treasures here on earth, store up treasures in heaven. So what do Christians do? Christians who have money, possessions, etc., are generous with them. They're investing in God's business here to store treasure in heaven. Christians give away forgiveness when it's not deserved. Wow, well, that's crazy. Not really. If you think about the fact that I will reap praise from God later. Christians love people who do not love them. I mean, the whole Sermon on the Mount, that's what it's talking about. I want you to behave in absolutely crazy ways. Things that people that think of this world, that think in worldly ways, think you are nuts. If your non-Christian friends don't think you're crazy, you should rethink your Christianity a little bit. I mean, seriously, we should behave in ways that seem kind of foolish to the world. I, I overstated that a little, but you get my point. And that is, we should be behaving in ways that people go, that's not the way most people I know behave. Why? Because we are going to hold on to something that we, that we can't lose. And that's what Paul is talking about here. 
So he moved on and he says this, therefore, he's he's basically saying, this is why when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony or the story about God. I resolved to know nothing. And that's saying something because Paul, very educated guy. Paul speaks Hebrew, he speaks Latin, he speaks Greek, he speaks Aramaic. Paul has studied Plato and Aristotle. He quotes certain Greek philosophers, Stoic philosophers, and Greek poets in his other letters. In other words, Paul is extremely educated, but he said, I did not come with with that kind of knowledge. I did not come with unbelievably good oratorical skills. He said, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And this is a powerful statement. So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Paul is saying, look, I could have talked to you about philosophy all day long. I could have talked to you in four or five different languages. I could have persuaded you to see things the way I did. He said, but then your faith would rest on man's wisdom and eloquence. You know, that's still a problem today, isn't it? I mean, that's just challenging today as it was then. In those days, teachers would come to town and they would charge for you to come listen to them. And they would keep you enthralled with their oratorical skills. I want you to think about, for example, this didn't happen in the ancient world, but it really could have. You remember the the, uh, play by Shakespeare, Julius Caesar? And you remember the great speech that Mark Antony gave in that thing? Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I didn't come here to praise Caesar or defend him. And he did. And by the end of the speech, I mean, Brutus and those guys that killed him said, we had to do it. And the people go, I know, he was a megalomaniac, had to get rid of him. Mark Anthony gets up there and he gives this speech. You should read this speech. It's just brilliant oratory. And by the end of the speech, they're like, why did we kill him? In fact, I think we had to kill Brutus and those guys. I mean, it was so persuasive. That's the way it was in the ancient world. And you could move people around one way or the other. I know I've quoted this to you before, but it's like one of my favorite lines. Plato wrote the story of Socrates. Socrates is going to be tried before the Athenian people. And so there are these attorneys or people who are arguing against him, and they accuse him of something that he probably didn't really do, but that has nothing to do with it. The question is, can you persuade those people to say, yeah, he should die? So after they give their cases, Socrates gets up, and here's the first first line of the Apology of Socrates, the defense that Socrates gives. He says this. This is 400 BC. He says, Athenian men, I don't know what you experienced when you listened to my accusers, but as for me, they were so persuasive, I almost forgot who I was. And yet, almost nothing that they said was actually true. That is the ancient world. And you know what? That's the world today, too. And so you get this idea of rhetoric. And we are a culture that more and more moves to persuasive words. If you don't believe me, just get on Facebook or Twitter for five minutes. 
I mean, literally 140 characters will completely whipsaw people's opinions about things. That still happens today. And Paul said, but it doesn't happen with the gospel of Christ because it will not rest on men's wisdom or persuasiveness. It's going to rest on God's power. The second thing I want to talk about here that, that he's going to talk about is what does it mean to rest on God's power? Well, there are several things that that can mean, but I want to tell you the one that comes from the... the here's, here's the way, if you're a Wesleyan and you go, really, what's a Wesleyan? Good, don't worry about it. But this is a Wesleyan church, and, there, and, and John Wesley um, really made some very good insights about the Christian life, and he really got this one right. Here's how John Wesley would answer this idea. Our faith definitely shouldn't rest on men's wisdom shouldn't rest on my emotional state at the moment or whether some preacher was so eloquent that I've decided I'm going to follow him. It should rest on the power of God. Well, what did he mean by that? One of the things that John Wesley taught, and I, I love this, and I believe this is very scripturally true, is he said that scripture is the arbiter of truth. The Bible is the one book. He said, I'm a man of one book, the Bible. It's true. But he said, my reason confirms the scripture. When I think about the world, I go, you know what? The more I think about this, the more I think that's true. And those other things are not true. But he also said famously that experience confirms the truth of the gospel. Now today you'll hear some people say that experience can override the truth of the scripture. Wesley never thought that, but he did famously think this that when you accept Christ and begin to follow him, your experience will validate the truth of the gospel. That's the power of God. What he's basically saying is when you begin to follow Jesus Christ, you not only will know this is true, you will begin to experience this is true. Those of you that have been following Christ for a long time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You not only believe the scriptures are true, you not only understand that they are true, have faith that they are true, your experience has confirmed it over and over and over again. That You know what? That is exactly the way God says. My experience would put the amen or the exclamation point after what the truth of the scripture says. Here's the interesting thing, though, and here's what Christ demands of us. You know how you're going to find the power of God in your life, the power of a transformed life? Don't misunderstand me. This is not the prosperity gospel. I'm not saying you start following Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden your experiences will be, oh, my gosh, I'm perfectly healthy. And guess what? I won the lottery. I'm perfectly rich. Oh, and guess what? My wife now just thinks I walk on water and my children love me. And did I tell you that they've gotten into Harvard? And you know, it's not the prosperity gospel. It's not experiences in, oh, God made everything go my way. Jesus said, that's not the way this works. And still though, you begin to experience the truth of the gospel and you understand the joy that comes from being in Christ. But you have to go all in to get it. That's why Jesus says, think about what Jesus is saying, anyone who wants to come after me, what do you have to do? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That does not sound like the basically 30-day free trial offer, does it? He doesn't say, if anybody wants to come after me and have the peace of Christ, 
I'm offering one month free if you sign up now. And so you make no commitment, and I'll give you the peace of God for 30 days. That's not the way this works, is it? Paul says that when we come to Christ, our old self has to die. It's like, okay, this sounds serious. What, what do I have to change? He goes, everything. Romans 12, 2, you have to completely be transformed in your mind. You have to look at the world like God looks at the world. And that means letting go of almost everything that you have known before. Thinking about things so differently. I don't know about you, but I acted a lot differently before I was a Christian and afterwards. Not immediately afterwards. It took two or three days. Now, seriously, you begin to change, don't you? And you realize everything in my life is changing. Everything is changing. You have to be all in. But when you do, you see the power of God in your life. That's the call. That's what Christianity is about. It's calling you to change everything to be completely all in. And then your faith, your trust, isn't going to rely on somebody's persuasive words. It's going to rely on what God does in your mind, in your heart, and in your life. That's what Paul's saying. He says, you can't understand any of these other things. You will never, Amer he might say this, he might say, America, you will never solve your political divisions. You will never solve your race problems. You'll never solve your religious problems, your ethnicity problems, until you think like God thinks. Because none of the ways of this world, none of the wisdom of man actually are true. None of them will actually bring unity. And that's what Paul's saying. Well, he goes on and he says, we do speak wisdom. He says, actually, among those who are mature, among those who uh, follow God, you do realize that God actually is wise, that the true wisdom is God's. But not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. The rulers of this age are coming to nothing. In other words, they're going to perish. No, we speak of God's hidden, mysterious, secret, I like the word mysterious better because a mystery is not something that's being withheld from you. Secret makes it sound like God kept this from you. It's a mystery. The word is mystery. And a mystery is something you just don't understand yet. The gospel is a mystery, meaning it's available to anyone but it's completely lost on me until I understand it. So God Wisdom is mysterious, meaning he had to tell you the answer. It's sort of like, anybody ever been in one of those, uh, one of those escape room type things that are so popular now? You go into the escape room and you get these clues and you're supposed to figure out the clues and within an hour and you can get out. You're locked in the room and you're praying that the attendant doesn't go home. All right, so otherwise you're in the room forever, but you basically have to figure it out so you can get out. Have you guys done that before? Okay. There are times when you don't get out and then they tell you the answer and you go, oh, now I know how to be set free. Now I understand this because you have revealed to me the answer to this thing. And that's what God is saying. It's the gospel. Jesus Christ coming to earth was God telling you the answer to the mystery, revealing the mystery. That's why we call it revelation. He's revealing the mystery to us. And so he says, we do speak wisdom. It's God's mysterious wisdom, a wisdom that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory 
from before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had understood it, they certainly wouldn't have crucified Jesus Christ. He said, just like the scripture said, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. We begin to apprehend and understand the things of God because God puts his spirit inside us and the world looks very different. Hey, so I realize I've taken a long way around and that's what Paul's doing. He's taken a long way around. He says, you wanna understand how to deal with these divisions? He said, actually, there's no simple answer. Here's the answer. You have to think about the world completely differently. You need to think about it the way God thinks about it and then all of these things are gonna click into place. That's gonna be true. This foundational idea is gonna be true for everything he's gonna talk about in the book of Corinthians. And then he finishes it this way. He says, you know that spirit that God put in you, which by the way, in the letter he wrote to the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, chapter one, about verse 13, he says this, when you believed, in other words, when you placed your trust in Christ, you were sealed with God's spirit as a down payment to guarantee that he could deliver on eternity. So all who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ have been given the deposit of the Holy Spirit. And you go, well, that's interesting, Terry, because I don't really feel the Holy Spirit. Is that like superpowers? Yes. Is it superpowers like I could swing my coat and half of you would be healed of whatever ailment you have? No. The Holy Spirit decides how to use that power, but every one of you has power inside you. Every one of us has God's Holy Spirit. And God's Holy Spirit is working in us. And you know what the scripture says? Get out of the Spirit's way. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't aggravate the Spirit. In other words, quit trying to drive the car yourself. You did that before and you crashed. Now let surrender yourself, submit yourself, and let God's spirit guide us. He said that's the wisdom of God, is let God's spirit work in us. And he talks about it. He said, we haven't received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. That's why the, the story of the gospel is foolishness to the world around us. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he can't understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. Let me bring that down to earth. Think the Sermon on the Mount again. It makes no sense to turn the other cheek. It makes no sense to pray for your enemies. It makes no sense to do any of that stuff in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, and everything else. But for the moment, just think about what you know of that Sermon on the Mount. It makes no sense to do that. It's gonna inconvenience me when I could be spending my money that I'm giving, when I could be holding a grudge, which frankly made me feel better for a little while, right? Instead of trying to pray for my enemies, oh, well, sure, I'll pray for them. I'll pray for a little hellfire, you know, to come down on. You see what I'm saying is it's, it's very unnatural 
from a worldly point of view. And that's what he's saying is none of these ways that you're gonna end up acting are gonna make much sense to anybody who doesn't have the Spirit of God inside them. This, by the way, is the Pentecost phenomenon. Remember the Babylon, the Tower of Babel phenomenon? That thing that's in fallen humanity that pits us against one another? So you have the Tower of Babel story in Genesis, and then in Acts chapter two, on a holiday called Pentecost, a Jewish holiday, called Pentecost, the disciples are there, Jesus is raised from the dead, and he said, the Holy Spirit's gonna come on you, and the Holy Spirit's gonna be very visible, and it's gonna be visible so that people will believe that what you're saying is for me. And on the day of Pentecost, they're filled with the Spirit. They begin to speak in languages, and everybody can hear them. They begin to do all this. Notice that they all begin to speak in languages. They speak, and all these people that speak different languages can understand them. What's happening there? He's undoing the Tower of Babel. But it's way bigger than that. It's not just about languages. The Tower of Babel was never just about languages. It was about our hostility toward one another, our divisions. The day of Pentecost, what's that about? That's not just about languages either. That's about the Holy Spirit of God can bring all of humanity back together. The Babel phenomenon that divides us and the Pentecost, the spirit that unites us. That's what Paul wants to talk about. He's saying once you understand the spirit and that you have the spirit and that when you surrender, the spirit will shape you into Jesus Christ, now all these problems will make sense. All of these things can be solved. But as long as you live in the world of Babel, none of these problems will ever be solved. We will never come together. And finally, one of the best uh, phrases in this entire section is this. He said, who has known the mind of the Lord that he might instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So that is the end of this little excursion. He starts with, you guys have a big problem with division and you're already fragmenting and this church is not gonna survive. He says, and you'd like to know how do you solve it? And he says, well, before I tell you that, you need a total home makeover. In other words, you have got to think about things completely differently. You must think about things the way Jesus Christ thinks about things. And that spirit inside you will reveal to you the mind of Christ. You will think about the world the way Jesus Christ thinks about the world. And once you start doing that, all these problems go away. The story of the early church in the book of Acts Acts chapter two, Acts chapter four, it talked about this. There were no needy persons among them. They gathered daily with joy and broke bread. They were not rich, they were not famous. They shared what they had with others. And uh, those who had more possessions would often give them to those who were in dire need. Why are those things happening? And what, what did the rest of the world think? They were looking at this group of believers, these Christians, and they'd go, wow, that is really weird. People don't do that. People don't act like that. And you know, one of the reasons that people got really interested in Christianity is like, that is really different. And some people would go, yeah, that's really crazy. You're not gonna get ahead like that. But others go, yeah, I know, but don't you want that? Don't you want to feel that kind of love and acceptance? And it was hugely attractive uh, to a lot of people that were being called by God to join that number. 
they began to act that way because they had the mind of Christ. And it was so very different from the mind of the world. And so there's the challenge for you and me. So what does this mean for us as we move on in the book of Corinthians? Because we're not going to get anything out of the book of the Corinthians either. We have all the problems they have. We have problems with sexual immorality in our culture, and we'll just deal with it head on. We have problems with denominations and divisions and political bitterness and racial problems and ethnic problems and ideological. We have all of these things maybe worse than they did. And when we confront those things, we're not going to solve those things any more than they could solve those things with the mind of the world. We are going to solve those things, and we are going to make the world new by the power of the Spirit as our minds are conformed to Jesus Christ. That's our challenge as well. We'll be no more effective than the Corinthians as long as we think about the world the way everybody else does. I just really want you to realize you're not, part of what I'm going to say is slightly inaccurate, but, but bear with me. You're not Christians because you behave better than other people. You're not Christian because you come to this church. You're not Christian because you have a fish on your car. I mean, that's close. But you're not Christian because you have a fish on your car. You're not Christian because you have a cross necklace. You're Christian because you have trusted Jesus Christ, who died and was raised from the dead for you. But the most obvious thing about you that marks you as a Christian is how differently you think. And some of you are sitting there and going, you know, Terry, I'm a little convicted by this. You should be, because I am too. And that is, I don't entirely have the mind of Christ. And that's why we study the Bible together. When we stay in the Word, the Spirit inside us will mold us into the mind of Christ. And everything in this world will begin to make more sense to us. And we will be the agents of fixing the world instead of the agents of helping destroy the world. That's God's kingdom in the world, bringing healing. And we do that when we change our mind. And that's what Paul said is the first step. Make sense? Okay. Once you get that, buckle your seatbelts. Because you are going to hear things in the book of Corinthians that you're not going to like. Because here's something I want to tell you. Jesus is way more radical than you ever imagined. When you mean, Terry, is he a liberal? No. Is he a conservative? No. He's way more radical than you ever imagined. Paul's going to give them the answers to their problems, and you're going to go, you can't do that. That's not possible. And Paul's going to say, that's the Jesus way, and you're going to go, he's crazy. He is way more radical than you think. And when we begin to think like Jesus, we're going to look at the world and we're going to become really radical. So, are you ready to become really radical? If you don't come next week, I'll just know you're chicken. I'll just know you're like, whoa, no radical for me, buddy. Yeah, Jesus is more radical than we think. But don't be afraid of that. That's the adventure of the Christian life. So, next week, we get radical. I'll see you then.